No one was harmed in the filming of this sequence. The shit you and your friends do in a pub is what I do and somehow get paid for it. That's my natural hairline there now. Comedians are, yeah, we're very judgmental. I don't really think that the American people are more polarized now than they were 10 years ago. How are you? I'm Mike Sheridan and you're welcome to another episode of The Delve. My guest today is one of the busiest people in US news, genuinely. Jonathan Lemire is an anchor on MSNBC's Too Early and regularly appears on the flagship Morning Joe. He is the White House Bureau Chief for Politico and, and he is the author of the New York Times bestseller, The Big Lie. Jonathan has covered Donald Trump since he first announced his candidacy for president in Trump Tower that now infamous day and has had a remarkable insight into not just the man, but the Republican Party, who have seemingly enabled him at every tour post January 6th. I really appreciated Jonathan taking the time to do the show. As the midterm elections approach, anyone who covers politics in the US can find their heads spinning on the daily. Don't forget to subscribe, like and comment if you're watching on YouTube, or subscribe and review if you're listening as a podcast. Enjoy the conversation. Again, like, as I said in the email, I think you're one of the busiest people in news at the moment. So uh, you've taken the time is very much appreciated. I won't dispute that. Uh, I won't dispute that. But uh, no, I'm happy to do it. I'm glad you reached out. Um, and uh, yeah, and, and be in touch down the road if I can ever help again. Absolutely. And um, so I love the book. I said that to you in the email, like genuinely, because I've read a lot of books on Trump and a lot of them have come out. But yours, I think, is one of the first, at least that I've read, to really contextualize the whole situation and to look at the re possible reverberation of the big lie. So I assume that was always the intent. You didn't want to just focus on Trump. You wanted to look at the reverberation of what he had, what he had started or what somebody in his ear had started. Yeah, no, that is exactly what my goal was. It wasn't just to have a Trump book or even a January 6th book, but to show the origin of the big lie how it began, how Trump used it and lies, other lies, big and small, uh, to hijack the Republican Party, to hijack the conservative media, bend those two institutions to his will and whims, and then culminating in his unproved, unfounded falsehoods about his claims of election fraud around 20, November 2020 and then beyond. And of course, we all saw the violence that, that led to on January 6th, but the book, January 6th comes at about the halfway point of the book, maybe 60%, because we are still dealing with its aftershocks now. We saw post-January 6th, and more nearly two dozen states in the United States, Republican-controlled state legislatures, use the big lie as an excuse to tighten access to the ballots, to restrict voting rights. And right now, in the height of the 2022 midterms, we have election deniers, we have big lie candidates, on the ballot in states across the country uh, for senator, for governor, for secretaries of state, meaning that the impact of Trump's big lie, not just we're living with now in 2022, but certainly will in the 2024 presidential election as well, whether or not his name is on the ballot. And there's a lot of money moving towards state legislators and secretaries of state, which is something that isn't particularly uh, something that isn't or that hasn't happened before. Is, is that really unprecedented? And is that a direct fallout of the big lie because people every want to once in a while you get 
yeah, every once in a while, you'd get a state secretary of state race that would attract national attention, but that was rare. We've certainly never seen it like this, where so many across the board have so much money pouring in from Republicans and Democrats alike, because in many states, that position, that state secretary of state is the one who oversees the election process, who, who certifies the winner, who oversees the counting of the ballots. And what we saw in 2020 is that a few of those positions were really put in the spotlight. Most famously, the one in Georgia, Brad Raffensperger, a Republican, a Trump supporter, but yet he would not go along with Trump's request to rig the election, to find the 11,000 or so ballots that Trump would need uh, to tilt Georgia and put it in his column. He wouldn't do that. We had similar uh, we had the Secretary of State in Michigan get death threats because uh, that wouldn't uh, cooperate with Trump's efforts. But now we have a number of Republican candidates in states across the country, just to, you, Arizona to name one, who elects Mark Finchin, an election denier, who has said that if he were to win, he would go back and look at trying to overturn Biden's election victory in that state from two years ago. We have the Republican candidate in Nevada another key battleground state who says that they want to have all these Republican secretary of states get together to try to overturn 2020, but also talk about how they can ensure that they're correct, quote, putting in quotes, candidate wins in 2024. So this is, this is dangerous stuff. And that, that's a ramification of, of the big lies. And for Americans have really had their faith tested as to whether they'll be able to vote and whether their vote will be counted correctly. So people in the House initially spoke out against the big, well, spoke out, we kind of spoke amongst each other as well, kind of understanding that, okay, look, the election wasn't rigged. Then they went home for Christmas, so they went home for the holidays, realized how popular this conspiracy theory really was, and then came back and began to change their tune. And do you think that's one of the reasons why it's almost spread like a virus now? Yeah, that's a, a telling a selection in the book that you mentioned there, that after Trump lost in November of 2020, First of all, Trump himself privately acknowledged that. We've had the January 6th committee spell that out recently, that Trump would confide to AIDS. He was upset, he was frustrated, but he acknowledged he had lost. He did so privately. And in that window, right after the election, that White House emptied out. Their senior staffers began looking for new jobs. Also, there had been a COVID outbreak from stemming from election night, a party they had at the White House. So a lot of the aides around Trump were homesick or home quarantining or isolating. And it was a hollowed out place. And what was left were the true believers, the Rudy Giuliani's, the Sidney Powell's, and Michael Flynn's, who really started filling his ears with conspiracy theories. And he refused to accept uh, defeat and started with his legal challenges, which you know he had a right to do, but also tra uh, traipsing in these conspiracy theories, very dangerous ones about seizing voting machines. And even Michael Flynn suggested declaring martial law. And Republicans dared not break with him, infamously. Uh, a few Republicans even said, well, what's the harm in letting him do this for a while? We don't need him to concede. He'll eventually go away. Well, we learned that didn't happen. And as the weeks went on and he still wasn't pushed, he wasn't challenged to concede. Mitch McConnell, the, the second most powerful Republican in Washington at that point, wanted Trump's help to try to win the runoffs for the Senate seats in Georgia being held in early January. So he let Trump go along with it for a while. And then yes, these lawmakers, went home. And what they realized as they were home for a few weeks was that Trump, who is very good at staying on, who, very good at branding things about hammering home messages over and over and over, 
and his talk about the big lie and how the election was stolen had really sunk in, not just on like far right conspiracy sites, but in mainstream media, conservative mainstream media as well. And these lawmakers were hearing from their voters, hey, this lie was stolen, this election was stolen, you've got to do something about it. So, so many of them on January 6th decided they would stand with Trump. They didn't want to risk his wrath or the wrath of his voters. So they chose to decertify the election. At the same time, encouraged many of them, the crowds that we saw then storm the Capitol. Do you think if Mitch McConnell had have spoken out when he had an opportunity to speak out, and he has been critical of Trump, but he's also said he'd vote for him. Do you think if he had have spoken out and knocked her on the head, for want of a better phrase, that we would be in this position now? I think there were moments, a number of moments where McConnell or other key Republicans could have nipped this in the butt. They could have pushed Trump to concede sometime in November or December. And even if he refused, they could have at least defanged some of the power there uh, that, that he had. He could have shown a, a, a split in the party. Instead, that didn't happen. Um, even after January 6th, uh, there were moments where, you know, we know McConnell did indeed criticize Trump, denounced him from the floor of the Senate, both in the early morning hours of January 7th, while they were still in session, but later during Trump's second impeachment trial, denounced him. But yet at the same time, when asked if he'd vote for Trump again, his answer is yes. If Trump was the nominee in 24, I would vote for him again. And, and a real telling moment was in the, 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 the time when the Republicans most of all probably could have severed their connection to Trump came right after Trump left office, January 20th. And his poll numbers were incredibly low. He slunk out of D.C. in disgrace. But yet just a few weeks later, Kevin McCarthy went and paid a visit to him uh, at Mar-a-Lago, posed with him as a photo, making the calculation that he needs Trump's support if he wants to be House Speaker, if the GOP was to win the House this November, and even apologized, apologized to Trump for speaking harshly to him on January 6th. That's some of the new reporting that's in, the, in my book. And it was then that Trump's rehabilitation began. And we see now that he's nearly as popular today as he was uh, you know, at the height of his presidency among Republicans. I think it was in one of Bob Woodward's books where he spoke about Chris Christie telling Steve Bannon that he brought out the worst in Donald Trump. You bring out his worst tendencies. Now we're almost at a point where, where we pretty much are, a point where Trump brings out the worst in the Republican Party. It's flipped. It's, it's kind of extremely disconcerting, slightly terrifying. It, yeah. Well, Trump, I mean, look, Trump right now, Trump still is the overwhelming favorite to be the Republican Party's nominee in 2024 were he to run again. Now, we've seen this poll number slip a little bit this year because of the January 6th hearings, because of the FBI investigation at Mar-a-Lago, but he is still far and away the most popular figure in the party. And yes, it's true. I think he will get challenged now. And maybe two years or three years ago, we wouldn't have thought that. A Ron DeSantis or a Mike, a Mike Pence may mount their own presidential bids they would be significant underdogs uh, to, to Trump. And it's not just Trump. His the big lie, one of the other really important things we can't overlook is that more than half, nearly two thirds of Republicans now don't think Joe Biden was legitimately elected president. Joe Biden's been president now for coming up on two years and still more than half of the other party doesn't think he deserves to be president. He should be president. And that makes Biden's challenge of governing and working across that with the other party that much more difficult. And that's something we're dealing with now, too. You were there from very early on, too. I mean, you were there at, the, at Trump Tower for the announcements. So and I know you're on the ground for AP as well throughout his campaign. 
did you sense something building there, albeit for the worse, or all, all the better if you're a Trump supporter, but albeit for the worse? What was it like being on the ground from so very early on and watching these rally and been around these more and more fervent Trump supporters? Yeah, I have been there since the very beginning. And I will say, in the, in the summer of 2016 and into that early fall, I was one of the few reporters who covered then-candidate Trump and said, you know what, I think he can win, because you could feel there was a movement there. You could feel it. You could feel it the way he'd pack halls in Ohio and Pennsylvania and Florida. I remember one night in particular, I was still with the Associated Press at the time, my colleague was covering Hillary Clinton, the 2016 Democratic nominee, at an event in Miami. There was about 500 people there. I was in the same state. I was also in Florida with Trump in Tampa. And when Clinton that night had 500, Trump had 15,000. There, there, there was just an energy there. And we'd come across voters night after night at these rallies. I've been to a couple hundred of them at this point. And back in 2016, one of the common refrains from people we'd encounter was people who said they've never been into politics in their life. They didn't like Washington. They were apolitical. They've never voted before, or at least it had been decades. They certainly had never talked to a pollster before. And yet they said, they were, gonna, they were there to support and to vote for this guy, that Trump had struck a chord with them. So there was that hidden Trump voter, uh, and they came out on, on election night in 2016 um, what, and carried him to victory. So um, like, what, what is the best way for the media to cover Trump? And I suppose to a, a more, even more, it's kind of scary, sense to QAnon conspiracy theories, because it's a tricky thing to cover, because we're in an age now where people are being deplatformed because they can spread misinformation. Trump obviously got a disproportionate amount of coverage in 2016 because he was new. Do you think the media has kind of learned its lesson to some degree? I, I do. And I will say, you're right. Uh, the media did not do a great job of covering Donald Trump in 2016. We gave him too much airtime uh, and didn't do nearly enough fact-checking. But we improved as his presidency went on. I think, you know, all of us believed as much as we take truth to power, as much as we challenge authority, that usually when you get a statement from the White House, you can believe it's usually at least mostly based in fact. And that was not the case in a Trump administration. So we all had to adjust. And by the end of his time in office, we've gotten better at it. We realized you can't just carry one of his speeches live without any, any filter or edit because he just lies too much and we'd be giving him a platform to promote his disinformation. So we saw in the 2020 campaign and then after election during that window between election day and January 6th, whenever Trump would speak, there'd be a Chiron on the bottom of the screen sort of, you know, those words at the bottom of your TV, uh, fact-checking him in real time, or the network would cut in and out and say, and then have the anchor say, well, that's not true, that's not true. We realize we need more fact-checking and more context, but it'll be that much more difficult in 2024. Do we now have to cover him as an insurrectionist candidate? As you say, a conspiracy theorist candidate. We're gonna have to provide that, be that much more diligent, provide that much more context. And by doing so, even just by calling truth a truth, a fact a fact, will be certainly be accused of bias by those on the Trump side who will say, who will lie and say, we're not being fair, we're not being even-handed because this country is so polarized right now, team red, team blue. So it's gonna be as much of a challenge as it's been to this point, it'll be that much more so going forward. Is there any going back? I mean, that's the terrifying thing. We're a couple of weeks out now or a few weeks out now from the midterms. And I suppose we'll have more of a sense of that after November 8th, but it spread like a virus and you know, you're talking about America being polarized, you know, from somebody from the outside, I'm obviously in Dublin here. It's never seemed like more scary. I keep saying that, but we all watched the insurrection here as well. We watched on MSNBC, we watched on, on, on CNN. And the worry is, I mean, I suppose globally speaking, that 
doesn't look like there's any going back here. It's only going, it's only going one direction momentum-wise. Well, there's certainly a lot of global tumult right now. We did that. We look to our friends in London uh, who are having their own issues, but certainly uh, you are right that, that there doesn't seem like at least immediately going back. We're living with the big lie and, and, and its power right now. There are going to be candidates who support the big lie who likely will win election in just three weeks time here in the United States. Uh, at least Donald Trump and potentially other candidates who also are going to be espousing uh, election denialism will be candidates for president in 2024. You know, we're, you know, if Trump is challenged in the Republican primary, let's say he were to lose, do we think he's gonna concede or acknowledge defeat then? Is there any reason to think that in a general election against whether it's President Biden or anybody, that he would also commit to accepting a defeat if that were to be the case? We, polls show that both Republicans and Democrats alike now have far less faith in their democratic institutions and in elections than ever before. That's all dangerous stuff. Whether we live with this forever, I don't know. But certainly, this is a country that's gotten more tribal, more partisan, more polarized. And we're going to be living with this at least through the 2024 election cycle and potentially beyond. It's interesting because Carrie Lake is running in Arizona for Arizona governor, which was obviously called... Uh, by Fox News and kind of was one of the things that uh, tips the election early on in favour of Biden. Trump woke up and, and all hell broke loose, as we know. But this is somebody who was a news anchor, a local news anchor, who supported Obama uh, in, in 08 when he ran initially in 08 and is now like one of the biggest components of the big lie, conceivably in 2024 could be a VP candidate for Trump. Like, are people just realising, are candidates just realising, do you think this is popular? And then it almost feeds itself. It goes around in a circle. Certainly in a Republican primary, it's popular. I mean, you, it, it seems to almost be a race to go far, as far as you can to the right and to, to embrace the big lie. This will be the first test uh, in three weeks, whether or not that works in a general election. Um, some polls, for instance, let's talk about Pennsylvania for a second. A big lie supporting candidate, Republican Doug Mastrano, is well down and expected to lose. That said, Carrie Lake, the Republican GOP nominee, the GOP nominee for governor, is in a dead heat and seems to have momentum in the race. You were right. She's a former TV anchor. She's terrific on television. She's a good campaigner. Uh, she also refuses to accept that Joe Biden won the state of Arizona in 2020. She also has not committed to accepting any potential defeat were she to lose this November. She said she wouldn't do that. Um, she is someone who is seen as sort of a rising star. And for some Democrats and Republicans alike, are wondering, well, there's Trump, but what comes after Trump, whether that's in 24 or beyond? Is there a Trump 2.0? And they do point to two people in particular, Carrie Lake, who seems to be a more polished, a far less mistake-prone uh, Trump candidate, Trump-like figure who has the sort of the charisma and the, the populism and the popularity uh, to command a stage like he did, or Governor Ron DeSantis of Florida, who may not have Trump's sort of charisma, but has proven in recent years that he can use the power of governing to get across uh, his political points and to score political victories. So they seem to be sort of different in different spheres, um, the next generation of Trumpism. But let's be clear, Trump himself is not leaving the stage anytime soon. I'm not going to keep you much longer, just a couple, a couple more questions. Sure, of Trump, Trump initially agreed to do an interview for the book. And then yeah. once, once he found out what the book was about, I guess, he, he kind of backed out. What has your experiences been personally with dealing with him and asking him questions and and uh, just covering them. Yeah, he and I have a pretty contentious relationship. I'll do the quick version of the story. I mean, I covered him back in New York City 
back when I worked at New York Daily News and he was just a celebrity developer, he and I encountered each other a number of times. Uh, I was there from the beginning of the campaign. I, I quickly got a reputation in Trump circles as a reporter who asked tough questions during the campaign in 2016. He once uh, threw me out of an event after I tried to ask him right after the Access Hollywood tape, whether I tried to ask him uh, whether he had touched or kissed a woman without their consent. He threw me out and called me a sleazebag. Um, during his time in office, um, you know, I was there in the summit with Vladimir Putin in Helsinki, and I'm the one who asked Trump, you know, who he believed uh, when it came to claims of R Russian election interference, whether he believed his own intelligence agencies who said, yes, Russia interfered, or Putin who said they didn't, uh, and he chose Putin. Um, there, we had a few other run-ins as we went, but Trump's uh, experience with the media is, is, is unique, where every president complains about their news coverage, but Trump put the press at the center of what he did. He cared so much about media coverage. He also very dangerously caused, called us the enemy of the people, the enemy of the state. I know myself and other, uh, some of my colleagues received a number of very credible threats after he, after he did that. But at the same time, even as he vilified us, he was desperate for our attention. He courted our approval, uh, particularly if you had a, a platform which he cared about. And for me, that was you know, my writing, but also because I was a regular on Morning Joe, the MSNBC show that he hate watched on a daily basis. So in the stretch run, and I get into this in the book, in the stretch run of the 2020 campaign, on a near daily basis for several weeks, his then White House Press Secretary, Kayleigh McEnany, would pass me a note with something that Trump thought about something I wrote or said on TV. Sometimes it was very critical, but other times it was like him trying to show me poll numbers, trying to convince me that he could win, trying to make a point about something. So he had this desperate need for, for approval, even as he uh, attacked us. And, and yes, um, I haven't spoken to him since he left office, but initially through his aides, he agreed uh, to sit down with me to talk to the book. He has sat down with a number of authors uh, who have written their own Trump books. But once he learned more about what it was like and recognized that the big lie was becoming more of a pervasive, uh, what people were calling his claims of election fraud, a, fraud, a claim, by the way, he still has not disavowed, uh, he changed his mind and decided not to. And finally, you alluded to it there a little bit. You asked a difficult question uh, with Trump, to, of Trump when Putin was standing right there. And you were at the uh, wrong end of the debts there from, from Putin. So, I mean, that must have been uncomfortable. Just, just being in the room, you know, one of, we, we've seen how dangerous he is kind of uh, globally speaking in the past few months. That must have just been, you must have, you know, for want of a better phrase, you must have shit your pants, Johnson. Yeah, I avoided tea. Uh, in the aftermath of that, to be sure. No polonium. Don't fall out of a window. Yeah. No polonium in my diet. Thank you very much. Yeah. Staying away from windows too. Yes. I mean, that was such an incredible moment. I mean, it feels like in some ways a lifetime ago because it was pre pandemic. It was pre January 6th, but it's still one of the defining moments of the Trump presidency, you know, because there have been so many questions during the 2016 campaign and his time in office. What were his ties to Russia? What connection was there? What did Putin have on him? So when they finally met for that summit in July of 2018 in Helsinki, uh, and I, I knew that was the only question to ask uh, Trump was, you know, who he believed. And then I knew the only question to ask Putin was, you know, we, the, the, the dossier had been out there. The rumors had been in the wind. Did Putin have, you know, any compromising material, any compromise uh, on Trump or his, his family? And, and indeed, Putin did not break eye contact. Uh, you know, he was a scary figure there. He's only grown scarier in the years since we've seen, of course, what he's done in Ukraine. Um, and he gave a long-winded answer about how, how logistically it would be difficult to collect uh, material on all prominent Americans who come into the country. And listening to him, you realize he never actually denied it either. Um, but yes, Putin, um, 
was a scary character. It's a postscript to that story. Uh, after that summit, you know, Trump initially thought he did really well. You know, that was the last part of a week-long stint in Europe in which he threatened to blow up NATO while we were there. And we, all, we climbed back on Air Force One to fly back. Within a few minutes, Trump, by flipping on Fox News, realized he had not done well. That was a rare moment where that cable channel was very critical of his performance. And some of his staunchest allies were on TV bashing him, saying that it was almost treasonous uh, how he had kowtowed to Putin. Uh, and he got angry at his staff for letting me, a quote, tough reporter, ask a question. And he was so anxious to get back to Washington that our flight time from Finland to, to DC was about 13 or 14 hours. And he told the pilot to step on it. And we got back at about 11. <laughs> he was so anxious to get back uh, and, and to deal with this. So um, yeah, that was certainly a moment that uh, you know, changed my career um, and does have me looking over my shoulder from time to time. Well, a tough reporter. I don't think there's any better compliment coming from him. So uh, Jonathan, I can't thank you enough for the time. Congrats again on the book. I really enjoyed it. Thank you so much.